back, everybody, to Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that are not getting enough attention anymore. Maybe they got all that attention when they first came out and the attention disappeared for some reason. And we want to bring that attention back. My name is Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Lens Mike Reyes. And tonight we are talking about a film that I've been meaning to see for some time. It's Don McKellar's Last Night. She yes. said, oh, oh, wait, I better stop before we get copyright striked. Oh, <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think if you... If you were to sing a little bit of the strokes, I don't think it's going to copyright strike unless we, if we actually played it, maybe. But yeah. I think, Mike, it's time for you to belt it out. Last night, she said, <laughs> oh, baby, don't you feel so down? Oh, when you turn me on. Excuse me, copyright strike. Copyright strike. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, and it's great to have Don here. And we do have Don here, especially because we're also talking about his role in David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future. So we get, a, we get a double bill here with the great Don McKellar. And, um, you know, we'll get, I think we'll get into a little bit more uh, of the, uh, the specifics of both, of course, last night uh, and- Crimes of the future. Of the future! And, well, no, about, and more about Don's past, I think, for people who, who may not know all of the great stuff he's done. But, uh, you know, for those who've never seen it, last night is a film that is about the, it's not about what happened the previous night. It's about people dealing with the last night that the earth will be in existence because at midnight on the night of the, the, the events of the film, the world ends. And if you haven't seen Crimes of the Future yet, that's even, that's even it's even harder to go into a short description of Crimes of the Future. But let's just say in the future, where humans feel no more pain, except for one man, Saul Tanzer, who still feels that physical pain, but also can somehow grow new organs. And that's a wonderful thing. And in this world where people feel no pain, uh, performance art has become something a little different than what we know of it today. We'll leave it at that. And- Matthew, if I could sum up Crimes of the Future in one word, with the limited knowledge I have, plastics. Surprisingly, there's a lot going on in the movie. Not surprisingly, I guess. But with that, I think let's get Don in here to talk about these, and then we'll get into a little bit more after. Don yes. McKellar, please. Enter. Take your way to the Overdue Rentals counter. Bienvenue, monsieur. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Well, I mean, look, I, I was, I was, tell, I was telling uh, Mike, Mike earlier just how much, you know, you mean a lot to me in uh in the world of uh film and and just beyond film as well so like this is a true honor to have you here so thank you for for, for being here i mean a lot to you even beyond film yeah well you know you've done you've done more than just film you know, there's other stuff that's out true. there we can see you from so i don't want to just box it right into there you know <laughs> that's true that's true well, says you're dreamy and i i kind of have to agree um yeah i mean it's always i mean this is weird to talk sort of about my own film people you don't you say people do that do they well i mean well, well, we'll wait. We'll get to we'll get to last night a little, a little bit later because we do want to talk a little about crimes of the future. But yeah, I mean, that's what we love doing here. We love talking about films that you know were big when they when they hit and people were all about it. But just, they still need a little bit push now because as more and more films come out, some stuff kind of gets left behind a little bit. In for ways. sure, yeah. I, I will say for for in talking about crimes of the future, you know, as much as I love David and all of his work and and seeing you and his work before and in other places, Whip It was my favorite part. Of Crimes oh, of the Future. Really? That's you good. came on the screen. I don't know what it was. My my face just like beamed up. And then just watching you kind of also, again, I think a lot of people confuse, you know, most of David's most famous body horror work for being only that and forgetting how kind of light and playful he can still be within that world. Yeah, absolutely. When I read the script, I I, I thought it was really funny. And I still think it's funny when I see it. I, I mean, I find I do find his work actually has a lot of humor in it. That's one of the distinctive things about it. So I'm glad you feel that way. I, I almost feel like I'm a, that Kristen's character and mine uh, were kind of at like a comedy duo, uh, like a, a kind of comic relief. So, it, you know, not, we're not Laurel yeah. and Hardy, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I almost but felt it had bit. like, there was like, not that I would want to put any descriptors on it, but like it felt it was just like this like nebbishy fanboy somewhere in there. Yeah, and, totally. And it, just, that, it, just, it was just so good. Yeah, totally. That's what we're both sort of fan, fan, <laughs> fans, big fans, a little dangerously big, to the point that might be scary. Yeah. Or maybe not. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, so people will have to see when they finally sit down and watch the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the characters in the film are sort of in this ethical, philosophical debate, and you don't know which side any of them are on, really, who's good and who's bad. So I think we fit in that category. Well, that's just the beauty of Cronenberg's work to begin with, because no matter what sort of tableau he's sort of using, it always comes down to there's this very sort of big think piece in the center and how everybody reacts to it is just how close do you get to that edge? And depending on that di that distance to that edge, how do you react? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're right. Every character is in that. It's, it's really this ethical minefield and all the characters are sort of wandering through that. I think that's true. We, we had a bit of discussion. I mean, I remember talking with Leah at one point during the film about is the ending, is it very sad? Or, you know, while we were shooting or is it, and I thought, well, no, it's sort of optimistic in a weird way. And uh, <laughs> now that I see the film, I find it kind of sad, but mm. I think all those questions are open because, because the situation is kind of dire, but um, it's, it's how these characters deal with it that, that is in question. Well, that well. Then again, since you have such a, a, a historyed working relationship with David on both sides of the camera, yeah. when you come into doing one of his films, is it something where you don't have to question a lot of those story points with him? It's just whatever I can make of it is what I make of it, and then I can just go. Well, I mean, I think everything, every character, every actor in this film was totally committed because of David and because we sort of have a history with his films. And in my case with him, I, I enjoy him and I, I've, I just enjoy his presence. I think he's funny and pleasure to work with. But I think like it's remarkable how I think any of those actors would have done anything that he said without question. So that, that was a really pleasurable working environment. In terms of sort of the plot and things like that, I talked a little bit about that in advance, but I think everyone was in that same level. Okay. Um, Vigo, when we were rehearsing, said that he thought it was like a film noir, and that was helpful to me because I thought, all oh, right, I'm sort of like, I don't know, Peter Laurie or something, like a character, you don't know what he's, whether he's good or bad, he's just sort of interesting, he's got his own thing, probably probably not entirely healthy, whatever it is. But, and I think a lot of the characters are like that. They're just sort of interesting on and engaging just on the surface level of what they're doing. And that's part of what makes them intriguing, if that makes sense. Of course, yeah. <laughs> well, I was gonna say with, you know, again, talking about the idea of seeing the end of the movie, whether at first you maybe thought it was happy and then you thought it was sad, you know, there's a certain resolution in, in terms of Saul, but, you know, Whippet, we don't really get to see anything that's changed no. necessarily for him. Did you even have an idea of where the story for those characters went in your own mind? Yeah, I mean, kind of. I mean, I, I, I don't want to talk too much about the ending because sure. should I should I spoil these things? No, I don't know. How does, uh, what's this your one role? I think we can wait a little bit on, you know, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, when it got to my very last scene, which is a very kind of brief moment, uh, with, uh, with um, Tim and uh, Christian's character, um, I kind of, I, I wasn't sure where I was. And, and mm. David made a proposal of how I respond to this. Uh, this is so bad without talking about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I feel it's like we find that we are not on the same ethical, we have yeah. a difference of opinion. So we seem like this team throughout, but maybe we're not as united. Uh, there's more revelations about her character to come. So anyway, but yes, I think <laughs> there is there is a clear sort of direction of where my character and where our two characters are going in my mind, but uh, it, it's not, it requires conjecture on the audience's part. <laughs> Well, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes that's the, mo the more exciting option. I mean, we'll, we'll sort of touch upon that when we get to last night, but- And we can spoil last night when we, when we talk about it's, last night, yeah. Yeah, it's all about the ending, so let's just spoil that too. Yeah, but the ambiguity is sometimes it's, or maybe just the slight specifications are better than flat out saying, this is why it's happening, this is yeah, what's yeah. happening. Yeah, because the questions are big questions. I mean, the, 
the themes that the movies are dealing with, generally with Cronenberg's film, and certainly in this case, have they're big questions and they're not they're not easy to answer. And certainly in this case, do you know, as he he describes it as a sort of provocation, I think, like uh, uh, like this idea that well. Um, we've destroyed the environment and we've destroyed our bodies. So maybe the solution is to start eating plastic. And maybe that's a very, maybe an adapting to that, adapting to the microplastics in the system. And it's, and it's kind of deliberately provocative, but, uh, and, uh, but I think you could argue both sides, either, either side, there's no real answer. Yeah, well, that's that's what I when thinking about the movie, and that's what I've started to realize about almost all of his movies as I went back and started thinking about them, and again in conjunction with Crimes of the Future, is that I could argue either way whether he is for this idea, yeah, of exactly, these new futures or against them. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a level of satire, but I mean, but it, but yeah, it's definitely not clear, right? And my character, whip it, I is sort of a classicist. He describes the, the sort of preserving the idea of humanity as a, the, in the classic sense. And so he's bound to be um, posed with some challenges in a Cronenberg film because- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there, there was never a real good place to put him in, right? <laughs> no, no, he can't win if, he's, if he wants to preserve classic humanity. Yeah, and I think as much as I still love to talk about Crimes of the Future like all day or anything with you, honestly, you know, we it would be hard to not spoil it too much for people who haven't seen it yet without going. So we do want to talk to you about your film last night, which yeah. is something that before we talk about more specifics of the film, I have to say, as much as I loved both movies and as much as there are what you want to, you know, films about the apocalypse before last night, after last night, I was almost shocked that there was not a big uproar when Seeking a Friend for the End of the World came out. That yeah. it was like, not trying to be a ripoff, but like the similarities. Yeah, are a so, rip -off. it's a ripoff. <laughs> it's just so obvious. It's just so I can't. I couldn't believe it, especially with the bright light at the end of that movie. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, I, she sort of denied it, and uh, but I, I know friends who know her. Anyway, <laughs> what what can I say? Uh, it's very very similar. It has a lot of themes uh, that are. Yeah. Similar, she may have absorbed it indirectly, uh, but there's a great many coincidences. Yeah, uh, and I don't, want, I don't want to harp too much on it, but I just, I just had to bring it up because I'm still shocked that, again, people obviously talked about it, but I, I think that it should have been a bigger uproar about it personally. Yeah, I mean, I had friends who said I should, but you can't, it's very hard, you can't really sue. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's one of the natures of film, right? I mean, hope, I mean, I think, without bragging, I think it was very early in that sort of post, like that, whatever we call that. And yeah. it's almost a new genre. There's quite a few films in that, in that category now. And, uh, and um, that's the nature of film, right? I mean, I mean, I guess it, in the positive sense, it means your film has had influence and it's, yeah. and it's getting out there in one way or another. But yeah, it was pretty shocking. <laughs> It was funny because I literally had it in my notes. It's like Pulp Fiction meets Seeking a Friend at the End of the, the Yeah, world. yeah, yeah. This is definitely like, it, it, it's that sort of meme that floats around. It's like, person is, second film, of, uh, uh, how does it go? Person has only seen Seeking a Friend for the, uh, the End of the World. Second movie they watch. This movie has Seeking a Friend at the End of the World vibes to it. Well, that would be really, really sad. Yeah. If that <laughs> happened. I hope people always check dates on films. It, it's, yeah. It's, before they make their comments. <laughs> <laughs> there are still people, I think, there are still people who argue that uh, somehow Lord of the Rings ripped off Harry Potter or something like that. So I don't yeah, have, no. I don't have I mean, you can't, you can't be responsible for that, yeah. right? That's just misinformed. But, and hopefully people will correct them when, they, when they're told that thing. I mean, it's part of, you have to sort of accept when you make movies that part of it, you know, like, like your show, right? Like your podcast, like old films, have influences and maybe people have sort of forgotten them, but they seep into our culture and they seep into our thought. Yeah. So. Well, I remember, I remember I was going to school in 1999. I was going to New York Film Academy. It wasn't even a full school department. It was just a, a, um, a program at that point. But my roommate was from Montreal. And yeah. he says, you have to see this film last night. Cause at the time oh. I hadn't seen it. 
And he's the yeah. one who introduced me to you. And then like also, and also oddly enough, I think like two years later, I was going to school in Toronto. Oh. And I was unaware wow. of the underground system there. And he says, well, watch Way Downtown. Oh yeah. And I'm like, okay. So like things started to come into- It's into, the same friend, was it? Same friend, yeah, yeah, same yeah, friend. So, he was, uh, he was, he always seemed to try and like, not that he, I don't think he was trying to show off, but I think in, in a lot of ways he was trying to say, like, you probably never heard of this, let me tell you. But right. fortunately, at least a lot of the stuff I did know, but thank God he introduced but me. But my films are good for people who want to want to show secret expertise because, mm. you know, that's the other advantage of being obscure. So I'm a gift to those nerds. Well, what I loved about last night- those when smart I first nerds. Yes, exactly. The, good, the, the yeah, real smart. those poser nerds, the ones that yeah. are like, oh, well, have you seen this film, Avengers? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let me tell you. It you could go through my whole filmography. Well, what I, what I love very specifically about last night, when I first saw it, and even again, we're re-watching it before speaking with you here, was that even though it's, it's a little obvious, it doesn't hit you until almost it hits 11 p.m. that is still bright and it's getting yeah. brighter. No, I'm, I'm proud of that, yeah. And that it's not only, a, not only a brilliant storytelling device for not having to worry about explaining what's exactly happening behind things because yeah. you can make your own assumptions of it, but it has that deeper layers behind it about people kind of getting the light shown on them as it goes on and, and understanding a little bit more about their lives. And it's just a brilliant stroke and a wonderful move on your part. Oh, thank you. No, I'm proud of that. Uh, yeah, as you say, I, I, I didn't want to explain. And I mean, my biggest problem with a lot of these end of the world movies is, you know, they're all about the mechanics of how it's ending and how to stop the meteorite or whatever the problem is. And, and I didn't want to deal with that. My whole, my whole thesis was that it, it's about the question of yeah. what you would what the normal regular you know non astronaut would do if if the world was ending and uh, and so but i still i there had to be something clearly wrong enough that everyone believed that it was the end of the world you know like uh, that that they were persuaded that you know it wasn't just a theory uh like don't look up yeah um you know like everyone had to be believe it so i thought of that idea that it it just not getting dark the nights have disappeared and it's getting brighter and brighter and along with that there's no sort of vegetation i don't know if you can see there's not very much vegetation things is a little bit dried out and so it's enough you know we don't know exactly the details but something is clearly wrong and 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 you're right what i like about it is you don't really notice until people don't really notice it about halfway through it's like what yeah. o'clock? this is a cheap film they couldn't even shoot at night or something or it's like oh wait a minute yeah, yeah. I will fully admit this is my first time seeing the film after okay. knowing about it for decades and just, I love apocalyptic stories. I love apocalyptic cinema. And this was just one that I, again, overdue rental. I had not yeah, gotten yeah. a chance well, to cross it off the list. And then I'm, I wrote in my notes, it's like, wait a minute, does Canada, I, I, like, I'm just, is there a part of Canada that has the 30 days a night and 30 days? <laughs> yeah, night? that's right. It's so I, far north. I remember, yeah, a couple of people asked me in questions that too. So like, Mm. so far north in Canada that yeah it's like well there are parts but not in Toronto yeah and then you just drop <laughs> and then you just drop one brilliant line that really does sell the whole thing like towards the end like as you're you and Sandra oh, are holding guns to your heads you're like yeah you missed the night yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah. there it's like yeah. oh okay. okay yeah for the observant viewer yeah <laughs> there's no question at that point the smart nerds yeah 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 but that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like there are a lot of, whether or not it's something you didn't notice or, or, or was supposed to notice, let's say, there's a lot that you hold back on purpose, obviously, you know, very specifically. Like, I think, I don't know if it was, if, if even was this time or the first time that I, I thought about it, like even as she's listening to the rec voicemail recording of Duncan leaving the, the gas message, yeah, you, you, you may not even be aware that that is who she's trying to find. Yeah. And as all this stuff starts to unroll, all this previous thing of, oh, maybe maybe you're agreeing with Jenny's boyfriend that, oh, it's okay for some people to blow off steam. Yeah, that's uh, right, yeah. Obviously, that amazing way that Cronenberg is actually backing up, as Duncan's backing up into the darkness. Yeah, and you know, you're still that. not sure. It's like, you know what happened. And then you yeah. totally change your views again on what you think is okay and not okay in these situations. Yeah, oh, that's good. Uh, first of all, I agree with you. I really like that little sequence. Uh, 
leading up to, I don't, again, I'm afraid to say, but anyway, yeah, that backing up sequence, <laughs> I just like the way it works. I mean, needless to say, if you're going to inflict violence on Cronenberg, you have to think about it a lot. <laughs> Uh, and so we put a lot of preparation into that. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's exactly right. I, again, it, you know, this writer friend of mine described that all, the film is almost like a writer, writerly exercise, right? Because it's sort mm. of avoiding exposition in a kind of story that is normally quite exposition heavy. And obviously the, the, the idea right from the beginning was, as I said, to, focus on character and focus on on human responses so yeah that was one of them you know yeah and and yeah and and in terms of the violence and things like that there was also i i i don't know if you know that this film was initially commissioned by a french uh company to as part of a series of international films about the turning of the millennium so i was yeah. thinking a lot about canada and sort of perceptions of Canada and mm. and maybe making fun of them, but also validating them. You know, one of them is this sort of pacifist idea, this idea that we're all very nice and sort of the family is almost excessively nice uh, and paralyzed by it. But at the same time, there's some truth to it too, right? There's some truth to their parents' um, philosophy. Well, especially that the near the end when the the grandparents are watching the videos and it's like, yes, why why do we have to care about the younger generation? You yeah, like that whole thing was just brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> but, thank you. I, I like that too. I mean, it's something I always thought about. Anyway, but but yeah, this idea that people always immediately after some tragedy say, "Well, what about the children?" It's like, well, of course, that's terrible. But uh, every life is valuable, and in many ways, the people I think who feel the end more more profoundly are those who have lived the longest mm. because they know what they're missing so anyway that was yeah part of and they're also already in that sort of perpetual mindset of like you get to a certain age and it's like okay it's it's coming it's been coming and then once the end comes for everyone it's like well i told you i mean yeah that's right yeah no they've got the perspective right because they've been they've been prepping for it now, an interesting thing that I wanted to touch on was you act, this was around, uh, not only did you get to direct David Cronenberg, he <laughs> also directed you in Existence not too long after, and then of course yeah. you, you reunite for Crimes of the Future. Yeah. What was the sort of unique sort of angle that you were able to use in your relationship with him as a director and an actor sort of going back and forth? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I directed him before that in a short film called Blue, which was sort of a student film I made of mine. And I, I uh, and I, I, I thought of him because he represents this kind of, because I love his films and I, I also love his persona and certainly growing up as a Torontonian, there's something very um, archetypical about his, his demeanor, which I think there's this sort of sense that there's something going on. Something, he's almost too calm and too benign on the surface and beneath it there's something possibly dark and certainly if you see them I mean it's it's informed by the fact that you know his movies and you know his oh, mind yeah. so so I cast him as that kind of character that has it was very calm and Canadian on the surface but there's something deeper going on and <laughs> and so that's what I that's what I wanted with this character it worked out very well and I loved working with him and 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 I was surprised how serious he was as an actor when I did it. Well, not I wasn't surprised, but I mean, he, when I asked him to do my short film, he said, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's good for a director to see what it's like every now and then on the other side of the screen and uh, on the other side of the camera. And, uh, yeah. you know, um, and he was very, very respectful of, of me as a director. Obviously, as a young filmmaker, if he raised an eyebrow at one of my camera placements the whole crew would have mutinied but he didn't you know he's very he's very sweet about that so uh i guess it did form this kind of strange relationship that is sort of raised its head again with uh crimes of the future i, I don't know what i represent to him but certainly i feel mm. like i have this uh, sort of uh artistic back and forth with him that that i find really fruitful anyway 
you know, we're going to have to let you go soon. And I think it would be criminal if we did let you go without talking about, because again, amazing cast in this whole movie of just like some real legends, whether yeah. then or now, um, yeah. including you know, Sarah and, and, and Robin, a lot of other people. But how can you not talk about Sandra Oh, who is not only somebody amazing in the movie, but yeah. she's, I think, the one actor in the world, one of a few actors in the world where like, no matter who, how opinionated people are, everybody loves Sandra Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at the time, I, she hadn't done much, obviously, but I, I, I loved her. And one of the things, I, I felt that she's an amazing dramatic actor. Even at the time, people thought of her as a little bit lighter. And, and she, was, I, she was about to do this series, Ireless, this comedy. Anyway, I, I just thought she's got amazing range. And this, the, the part of the film is quite difficult because she carries a lot of the emotional weight at the end, mm-hmm. until the very ending. And, uh, and it, and she was the first person that came to mind. And she was yeah, a huge gift because she certainly, I also wanted someone really strong because I was acting in a film that I was directing and was my first film. So I wanted someone who would help carry me through as an actor and she absolutely did that. And uh, yeah, she's, she, I, I mean, I don't know about the rest of the world but I certainly love her. Uh, um, it's very hard, hard not to, I agree. Yeah. It's also, and again, just to, to leave this off, a last final thought, again, that things I forgot about the first time watching it the second time is that as you're watching everybody, you know, kind of live out how they wanted to live their yeah. last days. I love Genevieve as, as the professor, because when you first oh, yeah. see her, you just think that she's agreeing to do one thing. Then you realize she's going to help all the people she remembers. Yeah, yeah. And that's a wonderful of, like, thing. She's a good teacher. Yeah. In the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's not a professor. She's a high school film, uh, uh, French teacher. It was a very Canadian thing, obviously, that we all have. <laughs> we all have our experiences with our <laughs> our French teachers in high school. Not like that. Not that experience, but no. <laughs> you know. I mean, there's always the teachers that you kind of have that sort of crush from afar. But yeah, then, exactly. Obviously, it's the last night. Some people exactly. are, are going yeah, to act yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it's a bit, but it's mutual, as you say. Uh, you know, like. Uh, She's yeah. also doing her best for her students. <laughs> I mean, she went she's to amazing and she's amazing in it too. I mean, oh yeah. She she was, yeah. Every, everybody was everybody was incredible. Oh, yeah. Don, I wish we could just like, because there are a lot more things I would love to go. I wish we could keep you here all day, but I unfortunately can't. Yeah, Thank you so another much. Another time. There's lots of yes. movies on your list. Oh, I'd love to talk absolutely. About. <laughs> Come back anytime, please. All We're, right. Doors always My, open. A pleasure to talk to you. Um, thanks for asking me. Have, Have a great one. day. All right. Don McKellar, ladies and gentlemen. I... I'm sorry, Mike. This, is a, this was just a big thing for me. Like, I, I, I know we mentioned it to Don when we were talking to him, and we mentioned it for a few people, because there are, granted, I, you know, there are so many people that you want to talk to, and we've, we've, in our history, gotten to talk to, but, like, this is a special thing for me, and I was really, really happy that it happened. Oh, I could see it. And that was part of what I really loved about this. And this was one of those sort of seat of our pants scenarios where like this came up pretty quickly, but you know, over to rentals, we're not going to pass up uh, a big book like Don McKellar, especially because having him being so high up on your list. And I'm just in awe of the conversation that we had with him and just the I, I'm, I really feel like we're settling into this groove where maybe it's because of the guests we're getting, but also because of how we conduct ourselves as podcast hosts. We're getting some really good sort of conversational conversations here and not yes, just yes. junket conversations here. I mean, we, we're still on topic and obviously keeping things specific and topical, but we've got a nice rhythm going here. Well, look, I mean, like Don's a guy who, you know, for people who only... Uh, not even just, even people who would love indie films, let's say, you know, there's a certain, there's still a certain stretch that, you know, even Canada is still considered technically, you know, I don't know, it's weird saying it, but it's, it's technically foreign film in a way uh, for a lot of Americans, you know, and they don't see a lot of stuff that's not promoted through um, normal, you know, Hollywood routes of distribution. And, and well, Don that is, they can recognize because let's not forget there's been plenty of Canadian productions on cable and like yeah, sci-fi well, channel movies left and right where pe- some people have probably been seeing Canadian films and they didn't even know it, like even Splice. 
Yeah, but the, the thing about Don is like he's he's kind of in a lot of ways he's royalty, not just for filmmaking, but as an actor, as a writer. I mean, again, we we, we mentioned it with him, and, and hopefully we will get him back because like you think about things like the man wrote thirty two short films about Glenn Gould when that movie came out. That was like that was like a revolution when that thing came out. Like that you couldn't go. That was another thing, just like Run a Little Run. You couldn't turn right or left without hearing somebody talking about it. Um, you know, the Red really? Violin was the same thing when that came out. You know, it was more of a still indie than compared to any things, but that was that was a big thing when that movie came out, you know? And I never put two and two together that the Red Violin, I still haven't seen it, but the Red Violin I knew of. Yeah, right. Never, that was him. And also, something that you mentioned to me after, the Drowsy Chaperone. Yeah, he, he wrote the book. He co-wrote the book, I think co-wrote, right? The I Drowsy Chaperone, so. yeah. I just remember the one song that I remember for it was the one that they kept like spamming in the ads was Toledo Surprise. And it's a really good show tune. But I never, like, I would have never thought that that was the same guy that did Last Night and the Red Violin and all these other things. And just, you had mentioned just the term Renaissance man. And that is definitely what, that would definitely sum up Don McKellar in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's like, again, it's like, if it's somebody that you haven't seen his films or haven't seen his acting or didn't know, like, you know, he's, he's somebody that everybody has probably seen because also for those people who only watch, you know, the big blockbusters or the, the big talked about films, my, my, my thing that I love to bring up to people is, is that if you watch Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the director of the Lucas Lee film that Lucas Lee keeps shutting down is Don McKellar. That makes me so happy. And then also you mentioning the Edgar Wright connections on how yes. like you definitely see how Space and Shaun of the Dead had their, the influences on Edgar Wright because last night, like, Okay, something that I, I think I've mentioned it before, but something I like to do is I'll look at like old trailer reels mm. and especially especially come from like the late 90s, early aughts. So that was when that big slick digital look was around. And then that's the same thing you see Edgar Wright use in Spaced and uh, Shaun of the Dead. That visual language is so present in this film that it felt like home. And this is the first time I've seen this movie. Yeah, like if you didn't know, Especially, especially spaced. You can feel, you can feel a lot of that that the flare coming that when you watch last night, and even like it's even funny too because I was I was on Twitter earlier, just looking up because you know when we when we have guests on, we want to tag them later on. I didn't know if Don was on Twitter or not. He was not, but I looked up his name and the top two tweets are still they're still from 2019 and 2020, but they're literally from Edgar Wright responding to like something like uh, Screen Rants poll of like what's a movie that nobody's seen, everybody should see. Edgar Wright yells. Last night, that's the very first thing that comes up, and it's from 2019. <laughs> Maybe there's hope for us to get Edgar Wright on the show at some point because of the tastes and films that that we all share, and also, you know, some of us really dug Last Night in Soho. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe, maybe there's another another uh, title title drop we didn't even realize until just now. Some of us just really dig his films, but also I think you mentioned. Uh, Run Lola Run, which is also part of the Overdue Rentals back catalog yep, that we'll yep. plug again at the end, but why not plug it now? Because Run Lola, oh, Run Lola Run. I this was just this cradle of of indie goodness, like between the late '90s and those early aughts. Like even well, even the early '90s to the early aughts, it was just like Miramax put something in the water, and a lot of people picked up on it. And thankfully, you know. We don't just have Miramax to talk about in, in, in that time period because yeah. you know while the while the work still holds up, the the executives did not. But again, just and then what also another thing that struck me when watching last night, so many like Canadian who's who yes. actors in here. Like I, I loved seeing Sarah Polly in here. Uh, of course, you know, the great David Cronenberg. And uh as a Battlestar Galactica fan, seeing Callum Keith Rennie again is that fool in love, that fool for love, <laughs> but this time in a much nicer context than Leoben on uh, on Battlestar. Look, I mean, you have you have also, I mean, look, I mean, beyond them, you go, I, you know, there's Robin Gamble who's and, and Roberta Maxwell who play his parents in the film, basically legacy actors, and and I should say that I. I Robin Gamble is somebody who, no matter how many times I see him in something, and it could be the smallest thing, the largest thing, every time I see his face, the first thing that pops up in my head, though, is because uh, he has the role in Contact, where he's the one who has to give her, right before she actually goes on the trip, he gives her the uh, the cyanide pills, like, as a last resort, as a last resort. 
And like I, I, every time I see his face, it's all I can, I can hear him saying. But um, there's also, again, there, there's Genevieve Buyol. I'm probably pronouncing her name, hardly butchering it. Also legacy actor, but also very big because of, you know, her role in Dead Ringers. If we're going to keep going back to Cronenberg for all oh, of this. Oh, I think we have to talk about Dead Ringers at some point. Oh, look, it's it's happening. It's going to happen. Especially before the show comes out, because that's, I, I, you you do know about the show, right? We talked about it with uh, with Riley Stearns. Oh, we did. Oh, yes. Yes, we did. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, I think Dead Ringers, gender swapped with Rachel Weiss. it's like, I, I I think this is on the level of of Dead Ringers because Dead Ringers had you know dangerously handsome Jeremy Irons and now we have dangerously beautiful Rachel Weisz. It's like you can't lose. <laughs> um, look, there's um, there's there's so many again. There are so many people, and we we did get to talk about Sandra O oh very briefly at the end of the interview. Uh, I love yeah. Sandra O. Oh. Who it's I a- mean, honestly, who doesn't? As we had mentioned, but it just bears repeating, especially knowing that this was like one of her first major works and just coming back to this as, you know, knowing her from like Sideways or Arliss or Grey's Anatomy or even like most recently Turning Red. It just knowing her from all these other roles and then going back to this and seeing her like starting out and it's just right out the gate, the woman came to play. And this is definitely a role that you, you come to play, especially <laughs> as, it, as it unfolds. Um, there's, look, I mean, like I said, during the interview, my friend, you know, who was my roommate at the time when I was going to, uh, when I was going to, uh, New York Film Academy, he was the one who introduced me to this. Uh, and I, and I feel bad, actually, I, I should, real bad, I, I made, I, I kind of made him sound like he was trying to be like a show off when I was talking about it in, during the interview. And I don't mean that in any way whatsoever. I don't think so. I, I just meant that he was somebody who tried to like, kind of impart, just like us, like we want to yeah. impart all these things that we love onto people. It's just that, like, I think he got excited about, like, trying to trying to introduce me to things that were, like, very Canadian-centric, but a lot of them were things I happened to know about, except for when it came to last night. He, he did introduce me to it and, um, and, and open up this world for me, um, which is great. So I'm just, I'm just thrilled to, to, to be able to uh, now talk to Don about it. Um, yeah. It's it just, it's, again, and I that remember- old I Y2K panic. Sorry? That good old Y2K panic. Yeah. Well, no, I look, I do remember when I sat down to watch Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And I do like Seeking a Friend for the End of the World as a movie for like what it presented as far as its um, actual situations. But it's hard not to. It's I probably was the only person sitting there going like, is anybody? What? Like, am I, am I, because I was a press screening, a small theater. I'm like, is anybody not? This is, this is last this is night, guys. <laughs> and uh, I don't, yeah. So it's like, it's such a strange, it was such a strange thing to me that there, there was not some big hoopla. I mean, again, obviously it was bought up, but like there was not a larger hoopla about it. Yeah, it really felt like sort of, like after having seen the two films though, Seeking a Friend at the End of the World really did feel sort of like the, the softer, more, I guess, mainstream indie version of this. Whereas this was pure indie, it has heart and humanity to it but it doesn't wear it too much on its sleeve and it allows these people to have foibles and and fail like there's that scene between don and and uh, uh i'm trying to remember his friend's name uh, uh, uh Keith craig. yeah yes craig is it where craig is basically admitting to him like look i've never slept with a man before i would very much like for it to be you and like that's another thing where in any other movie he might have gone psycho last night on earth. I'm going to kill you because you rejected me. But yep. that wasn't the type of person he was. And then he, they, they just, they have this sort of bittersweet moment where they kind of laugh it off. And it's like, yeah, like I would sleep with you anyway. And just even for a, a, a film in 98, playing that off like that and playing it so frankly and honestly, and just his spiel about the internet, like early internet, it's all this stuff that's just so grounded and so humane, but at the same time, it's very forward thinking. Yeah, it's it's something where, again, like I think when we, when we were talking to Don, it, it, we brought it up a few times, you know, because like any good story, I would say, you know, it, it holds back its real, 
mystery answering questions until the very end and you don't even think it's you don't even think it has them at some point you in a lot of ways you just think you're watching these things unfold and that's it and you don't feel that maybe there's supposed to be some surprises i mean the whole point about patrick's wife doesn't come up until like the last like five minutes of the movie like yeah you know, you, and it wasn't until like eight o'clock that i started thinking why isn't it getting darker yeah i remember very vividly the first time i watched it because like even for me 8 p.m is like yo it's the summer who knows you know like it could be very bright out there. Yeah, and and I didn't even start thinking about it till I, I think it hit eleven o'clock in my mind. Even though that was way that should have been too late, but like I was just like, wow, like it, it's just the fact that it's getting brighter and brighter. I'm like, why did I not think this in my mind up until this point? But again, it's very. It, it, it I know the the movie has been compared to the Twilight Zone, and I forget the name of the exact episode, but it's the one where the Earth is moving closer to the sun. Mm. Like it, it, the the woman is having like the fever dream of the earth is moving away from the sun, but then it's like, oh no, we're moving closer to the sun or <laughs> vice versa. I could be remembering this wrong. I swear I love the Twilight Zone. <laughs> but it was that same sort of thing where it's like it, it the, the reveal isn't the destination, but it certainly helps where even at the last minute, like he's like, I missed the night. And it's like, what you, but, uh, okay. Yeah, All right, yeah. Now we know what's going on. But it's not like it. That's not the main point. The main point is watching these people react to it, and it's not some sort of big spectacle where like everything is falling apart and all these visuals flood the screen. It's like you're watching these people. Yeah, in, in a very it. yeah, in a very big way. You know, like I, I should have yeah, asked them this, and I didn't. And and it's, it's one of these things human. too. Oh, sorry. What happened? It's big human. That's what I'm saying. Like it's big in a human sort of way. Like big with a lot of people and a lot of actions, but not like skyscrapers toppling over a giant wave yeah. engulfing. Well, no, because again, like I, I should have asked, you know, but in a lot of ways, and I do ask these to other filmmakers a lot of times too, but it's like, I still think no matter what, it's what you bring away from the film yourself, even if it's not what was intended, it should be the case. In a lot of ways, if you want to boil this down, it, it, it does come to the point that, you know, all of these people that were witnessing waited until the last minute to discover who they really were or admit the problems they had leading up to the end of the world, you know, and, and you know, you can't sit and wait till the end of the world to, to, to realize it's like, yes, I had these problems in my life or these things going on in my life, but I have to work on them or I have to reconcile them with myself, not at the last minute. It's, you know, it's just, it is that nasty habit of humanity has of continuity where we're trying to keep that veneer of reality. We're trying to keep society running until the end, until that last possible second when it all kind of falls apart. And, you know, there, there's that whole recurring thing of, you know, Duncan, David Cronenberg's character is making all these calls, telling everybody, thank you for your service. You know, we're going to keep the gas, try to keep the gas running until the end. We hope you're at peace with your, you and your loved ones. And it's this whole sort of corporate apocalypse washing, I guess you would call it. Like it's akin to it, basically, you know, since we're at the beginning of June and then we're at the beginning of Pride Month, there's some people that like to criticize companies of the, oh, the, the rainbow decals have gone up mm. with the, the company logos, but then July 1st, they come right back down. It's just a, people seeing it as like a marketing exercise where it's like, yes, we're on your side. Capitalism is conscious. And up until the last possible second, sure, yeah. But then slowly, you know, Duncan finds out that his coworker has been drinking on the job and, you know, eventually he leaves. And Not his coworker, his subordinate, technically. He's the boss. I mean, he's oh, the, he's, yeah, right. he runs it all. And then even the parents and the, and the grandparents, like that yeah. whole, again, the whole, what are, I, I, I feel no sympathy for these kids. They don't know what they're losing out on. Well, you know, especially with, going back to, to Cronenberg's character of Duncan too, it's like, and, you know, Don was talking about, you know, how he, David's a soft-spoken person and he's kind of like mysterious in a lot of ways and that's what he's trying to portray and like it's it's another one of those like in my mind what I consider like trap casting roles because it makes you think that like is he like his um his nightbreed psycho-ish kind of uh, alter ego and like when, he, when we get home are we going to see the bodies or something like that and it, but it's the exact opposite and 
you know, because him and and, and Sandra and Sandra's character Sandra's character is Sandra in the film. For those who haven't seen it yet, she's the same name. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were to think about it, you know, barring whatever she comes agreement she comes to or feeling she she elaborates with Patrick by the end of the movie to partake in this this final uh, you know last hurrah, you know, Sandra and Duncan are probably the two most um, romantically envisioned characters of just being traditionally good, normal, happy people, if you want to consider it that, because oh, they obviously yeah. care about each other. They trust each other. There's no, there's no secrets kind of between them kind of thing. It's like, they're just, they're people. Um, and so that's, that's what you get out of them. And it's an interesting thing to see. And I, I do, I do absolutely love, because I remember even even rewatching it now, and again, as I mentioned to Don, you just when you're you're watching her listen to the to the voicemail, and it's up until like five seconds after that that you realize that's her husband. But even then, it's like because you're now so enwrapped in so much of it, you forget that where we left we not where we forget where we left Duncan off, but like when you don't see the brightness come for him. It's that, it, and you know, because you can tell that since he didn't pick up the phone when she called at that point, that obviously that didn't go the best way for where we left him. But when you don't see him get the brightness, you're like, man, yeah, that really, that hammers at home. Yeah, that kid shot him. You know, that that happened. Yeah, and then just that, that was another moment that really stuck with me because first of all, I love David Cronenberg's voice and his timber. <laughs> yeah. And just yeah. even in that scene where like, even, even when he's just playing like, I remember seeing him on Alias as like an LSD trip sort of doctor involved in like weird sort of psychotropic experiments. And he's just a very like calm, groovy sort of guy. Like I love seeing him do anything from that to like, as you said, you know, I, I still have to watch Nightbreed, but I know of his character in Nightbreed. That's probably on the list. And if it isn't, it definitely should be. And that'll probably be a longer episode because of the 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 extended cut that came out. Yeah. But you know even seeing him in something like jason x like knowing david cronenberg as a director slash writer premierly and then seeing him pop up and things it's like wait the guy who directed scanners is in this and he just again as don had said he he understands both sides of the camera and it's nice to see him like keeping playing in that field even after having like scanners or videodrome on his resume because he, he obviously there's something there that connects with him and i i, I he may have, i think he may have read one audiobook cuz i think he wrote a book but i would love for him to read more audiobooks with that voice but i've really tan spiraled off of the fact that that last scene of his is brilliant because he's just retreating into the house and he's like i'm not afraid of what you're going to do to me you're afraid yeah you're the one who's scared and yeah he knows he knows it's it's almost like he knows it's over too but it's just like just let he's gonna have to let that kid know that even with this it's like you're the you're the bad person you're the scared you're the you're just the the scum you know in, in yeah. essence you know uh it's it's and it's just the way it looks too it's just brilliant and, and again just like with his voice saying it it's just it's just too good it's too good also nice to see Sarah Polly in here because I love Sarah Polly to death. I've mentioned her before and tonight, but you know, I, I, the funny thing is the first time I remember seeing her in something was uh, Disney Channel's Avonlea. Oh. Which was that a big Canadian production, I believe, because that was like an Anne of Green Gables. I, I don't know if it was an adaptation of this series or a spinoff or something, but I remember seeing her as a young actress, like in the commercials for Avonlea on Disney Channel. And then flash forward to 2004, what happens? She's in the remake of Dawn of the Dead. And then it just clicks to me that the young girl that I saw as a kid is now fighting off zombies for Zack Snyder. Who we didn't know was Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder back then. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you, I'm sure you can guess the first thing I ever saw her in. I don't know. Oh, come on, Mikey, this is, this is slam dunk, man. Slam dunk, baby. I don't know if this is a slam dunk because you're slightly older than me and I'm surprised that I, you know, I need to know. Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Oh, well, when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, then definitely. That would definitely be, yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, I mean, like, William Household over there. 
again, talk about talk about you know um, the uh, the royalty of Canadian film and filmmaking and TV and like that. You know, she's definitely. Uh, especially after her her directing career, um, you know, took off yeah. and she's, when she started getting behind the camera more than in front of the camera. Talk about uh, you know another another one of those you know jewels in the crown, man. I mean, Canada, thank you, <laughs> thank you for things like thank you for people like Don McKellar and Sarah Polly and David Cronenberg and Genevieve Bouillot and Adam McGoyan. And who? Adam McGoyan. Yes, uh, Cal and Keith Rennie, of course. Uh, probably a lot of Battlestar settings and, and cast members. Uh, oh, and films like The Silent Partner, which we also covered on Uber Durant. <laughs> yeah. Such that beautiful, beautiful film. And now that is your cue, everybody, to go and cross last night off your overdue rentals list. You can rent it through Amazon if you'd like. But you can go down, hunt down out some uh, some DVD copies, uh, Blu-ray copies transfer. with a... Uh, sorry? The new transfer. Yes, with, with the, exactly, with the new transfer on it. Uh, June 3rd, you, you have availability uh, in your market to go see also Crimes of the Future, the new David Cronenberg, if you haven't seen it yet. I, I, look, I, can't, I can't say enough. Look, I'm not saying there aren't other things in the film I enjoyed. There was, I'm not saying things like Vigo and Leah weren't great in the movie because they were, but Don was, just, Don was just so perfect. He's my favorite goddamn thing in this movie. He's just uh, one of those people like, you know, back when you used to see Stuart Pankin in movies. It's like, I love Stuart Pankin. Stuart Pankin is here. I am glad to see Stuart Pankin. Yeah, but with it, I will say that Stuart Pankin is usually just playing Stuart Pankin. <laughs> I will, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a slight difference, I would say. Okay. Which, speak, oddly enough, speaking of, because uh, they, they just announced today that there's going to be a, a new version being made of a remake of Arachnophobia. Um, uh, and so talk about Stuart Pankin in movies, you <laughs> know. <laughs> and you know uh, Christopher Landon, who did Happy Death Day and and Freaky, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. is is behind it. And I'm so so excited, and I want Christopher Landon on this show because yes, I mean yes. But Mike, let me ask you a question. After people have watched last night, crossed out their overdue rentals list, gone and see Crimes of the Future, and they have to look us up to find out more about us, where can they find us? Well, I just like to say, hello, listener. We hope you're doing well and enjoying our uh, listening to our podcast in peace. Rest assured that if you want to make every effort to keep overdue rentals on the air until the end, you can find us on social media at TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to email us love letters, uh, suggestions to another film that we can do, uh, or if you're David Cronenberg and just want to talk to us, that's cool as well. Or if Don just wants to talk to us again, anybody involved in last night, we have an email address at overdurentals at gmail.com. While you're on the internet, looking everything up and probably paying bills, that's okay. You know, if we can help you do that through our voices and this show, that's good. And if you want to keep doing that, because we are on episode 51, almost one for each week of a year, you can find us wherever you ethically source your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Audible. I mean, you choose a platform, we're probably there with now 51 episodes of pure delight. And while you're looking for us and while you're finding us on all these platforms, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so the rental counter can stay open and we can keep the popcorn fresh. Uh, thank you, and until next time, because this isn't goodbye. It's blah.